Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are back with another popular return guest. Uh, He was a guest on episode number 84 in August 2018. So if you're still working your way through the archive, you might want to go back and listen to that one just to get a little more context. Um, Although you may know this guest from his popularity on Facebook and Twitter and all the other avenues that we will be discussing. By day, he works in shipping logistics, and by night and weekend, he is one of the most prolific authors in the chess world. He is also a newly um, titled Chess Life columnist, and he is out with a new book called Marvelous Modern Miniatures and a new course from our friends at Chessable, along with I am Christoph Selecki, Chess Explained. They have collaborated on Lifetime Repertoires, 1C4 slash 1 Knight F3, which the last time we had Karsten on, we discussed um, the full English opening. So he's um, diving even deeper into the English opening, as we will discuss, which was one of the things we discussed in the prior interview. The other primary topics of the prior interview were, of course, Karsten's background and a little bit about the publishing industry, the chess publishing industry, which we will also be discussing today. So with all that out of the way, let's bring in the man himself, FM Karsten Hansen. What is new? How are you? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back again. It's uh, it's exciting to be back. Yeah, we're still only, you know, an hour down the road from each other, but <laughs> still haven't met in person, um, although we have a good excuse right now, at least. Yes, definitely we do. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have to make that happen at some point. Um, but, but Karsten, you've been busy as ever. 
Um, but I thought it might be fun to sort of talk about, begin by talking about your chess game, because I know you, you're super busy again, um, have a job outside of chess and then you're, you're pumping out these courses. Now you have the chess life column, but you did manage to play in the European online championship a few months back and, and had, had a few good results in there. And like a lot of sort of, uh, people who do a lot of work in chess, um, sometimes it could be hard to find the playing time. So I was curious how that came about and what's going on with your game generally. Well, uh, prior to the tournament, I have barely played anything for years, honestly. It, uh, But I, um, uh, my fingers were itching a bit to get, uh, get busy playing again. And then I saw the opportunity to participate in the tournament. And it was a, a sort of a three-stage uh, qualification uh, based on my rating, uh, my ELO rating, I because I didn't have a, a rapid rating, I, I played with my regular uh, ELO rating, which is under twenty three hundred. So uh, I had to qualify for uh, for the following day, and then from there I had to uh, qualify for for the final. And and honestly, the the first day, I mean, the play was. Uh, outrageously bad uh, very poor uh, but I managed to just uh, yeah scratch my way in in and I think in the top 145 that made it to the next day um, and uh, the second day I played uh, a little bit better um, in the, in my very first game I lost miserably then I uh, I very narrowly lost to a uh, 2700 rated uh, uh, Grandmaster and then um, after that, things started just coming together. Um, uh, I beat enough players to qualify for the third day, which is where all the big boys were coming in uh, to participate, all the uh, the super strong grandmasters. Um, and um, yeah, I scored four out of nine, I think it was. And uh, I beat three grandmasters and, uh, and an international master. So that, uh, that's awesome! Congratulations! <laughs> thank you. So, so I mean, it uh, it was a fascinating tournament uh, just to be part of, and then and play against some of these uh, super strong players uh, is always a lot of fun, and also highlighted uh, my uh, my problems in 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 my opening repertoire <laughs> very well because uh, uh, they are very good at finding their way through uh, to uh, to those places that you don't really want <laughs> want to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, it's like water when you have a leak. The, the water <laughs> will go to wherever it can. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I, I, know, I know that feeling all too well. But that's pretty. That's pretty impressive. And you're what forty nine, Karsten? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I, so not bad for a forty nine year old man. I know you're <laughs> no, exactly. A lot of young bucks. <laughs> exactly, and 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 also being way out of practice. I mean that uh, uh, that was. Uh, that was fun to be part of, and I mean, again, I mean, it's it was just a warm up tournament, so to speak, uh, for hopefully uh, many more events in the future. I mean, I I played another event, um, the uh, I think the qualifier for the Speed Chess Championship, um, where yeah, I mean, I had some good games. I uh, I should have beaten Luke Van Veli, but uh, he escaped with a draw, and I beat. Stripunski, who, uh, wow. who he who played for the U.S. Championship, uh, I think a playoff against uh, Nakamura some years back. So, 
So, I mean, there were some good games, but there was also some truly horrible ones in between. So, <laughs> so there, there are some really high highs, and then there are some really low lows in between. So, but uh, but it, there's some promise at least. Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> impressive as far as I'm concerned. GM Strapinski, of course, being another New Jersey resident who uh, exactly. I don't know if you ever see him around, but um, but so. Well, how do you like what's the next step after a tournament like that? I mean, I'm imagining as a sort of um, working chess author, maybe you're not studying per se, but kind of a lot of what you do is like increasing your chess knowledge. Is that where you are or are you actually training on top of that? I am training on top of it. I mean, wow. uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the tactics uh, puzzles that I work on, and I'm sure we'll co- get to those as well. Uh, they keep me sharp tactically for sure, uh, because I'm I'm constantly sitting and pl- playing through thousands of games um, just to find the right puzzles. But in terms of actual practicing, I I do a lot of that too, um, primarily on Chessable, uh, where I've been. Uh, been polishing up my end game uh, using some of the end game courses that they have there, um, and also some of the opening uh, repertoire courses um, that uh, that were there. So, uh, because I mean, uh, when you haven't played for a while and you're playing against the big boys, something has to be working yeah. <laughs> in the o- opening department. But also, you have to be able to find your way out of uh, of some of these messy situations you get yourself into and. Uh, and and know uh, when a swindle can work uh, and uh, get your way into an end game um, and uh, yeah I mean the that that's where the end game courses really came in handy so yeah yeah <laughs> I bet yeah chessable has helped me to the extent where I can at least say openings are no longer the weakest part of my game <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> unfortunately there's other parts I need to work on but yes. but yeah. at least it's something yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned these tactics puzzles. I mean, you you share so many great puzzles, and you managed to call them from modern games. Um, you share them both on Twitter and on Facebook. So anyone who doesn't follow Karsten, uh, people listening probably do, but you should definitely follow him. And now you have your new gig at Chess Life Magazine. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be part of that as well. Yeah, so you're going to just take kind of the best of the stuff you find, or what's the plan for that? Uh, it's a bit of uh, a mixture. Uh, I I try to lean a little bit more about uh, on on American players, but also um, uh, sometimes I'll I'll aim for puzzles that I haven't used in my uh, on Facebook and uh, and Twitter and Instagram just to. Um, uh, just to give it a little bit more variety, I'm sure most people would have forgotten about the puzzles when they see them in uh, in Chess Life, but yeah. uh, but still, I I like to add a little bit extra to them uh, by by adding something that that wasn't there to begin with that uh, nobody would have seen before. Okay, so. yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, you could just do the same one and call it space repetition, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I guess, yeah, um, people like fresh material for sure. And I know you're doing the work. I mean, we talked in our first interview about how you're you're making time for the week in chess. And, you yeah. know, when Mark's games come through, Mark Crowther of the week in chess, you're you're always finding fresh material. And uh, yes, the chess world is the the better for it. Oh. Um, so so are you going to play some uh, real life chess when when this is over? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, my goal is to uh, to get out and uh, start working on uh, getting my IM title. Oh uh, wow, that would be uh, awesome. Yes, it would. Uh, I mean, it's it's long overdue. I mean, I, I remember being interviewed by John Watson uh, on the ICC uh, podcast a long time ago about books, and uh, 
He's like, why didn't you ever get around to to becoming an IM? Uh, and and several other people have asked me the same thing. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, it's maybe it's time now. And uh, uh, once everything clears up, uh, hopefully there will be time and uh, opportunity to uh, to get in some of these tournaments where the norms are available. That's great. So you're going to target some of the ones in like Charlotte or St. Louis, or just play the big open ones? What do you What do you think? I think it it'll probably be a mixture of it. I mean, uh, they previously asked me to play in in Charlotte a couple of years ago, but I didn't have time at the time because uh, I was busy with my work, right, uh, my day job. But uh, but of course, I would love to play there at some point again. And, yeah, and um, you're still a Danish citizen, correct? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I, you know, of course, we interviewed FM Peter Giannatis, um about a month ago, and he mentioned that it's helpful if you're from another country. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a country citizenship. Yeah, no, I'm I'm registered for Denmark also uh, on the uh, FIDE list. So uh, definitely. Okay, well, good luck. I mean, I'd love to do an, an adult improver interview with you when, when you get the title. I would love to do that too. Hopefully, we can have that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm that, like, would, that would mean I've been successful. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I'll settle. For, I'll settle for the FM title personally, but but it would definitely be inspiring for me if you can uh, if you can pull it off. So yes. So, sure. but again, I mean, there's also all the senior events which become available to me right, when, I, yeah. when I hit fifty. So, uh, and uh, and some of my acquaintances have uh, picked up titles in that. Uh, uh, connection. So uh, one of my uh, Danish compatriots, uh, Jens Christiansen, won the uh, the world championship uh, one year and became grandmaster on that account. So uh, I think uh, I think that's five or six years ago now. So so uh, yeah. Well, so we'll be tracking it. And <laughs> you, since you've mentioned, of course, your Danish background, I actually we've got a bunch of great questions. We actually solicited questions from the online community. Um, for this one. And this one is actually, it's from Tyron Ross Price, who is a um, supporter of the podcast as it happens. But this was through Facebook. Um, the There's always the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. And you posted this in uh, Brian Karen's excellent chess book collectors group. Um, and Tyron asks, he says, he'd like to ask, what what is your opinion of chess in the US compared to Denmark when you first immigrated to the US? And has your opinion changed now that you've been in the US for many years? It's a bit different. I mean, uh, the opens are absolutely enormous over here, and I mean, uh, the uh, the team tournaments uh, you can't really compare those with anything else I've ever seen in, in the rest of the world. Uh, like the amateur team tournaments, uh, I find them wildly fascinating. Uh, that yeah. that that so many people are showing up to play for no money, basically, <laughs> and uh, that's completely unheard of uh, in uh, in the rest of the world, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, initially when I came to the U.S. and uh, I mean that's a long time ago now. That was back in '96. Um, uh, yeah, I mean the events were just like regular opens, um, and uh, thankfully back then I was completely unknown. So, uh, uh, and when you're unknown, you get opportunities uh, to beat some players and, uh, and get some good results in by sneaking in through the back door, kind of, right. <laughs> because people they don't really know what to expect of you, and they don't know your playing style and your openings or anything like that. So. So yeah, I mean, I, I had that experience both in uh, in Florida when I lived there, and also in California. So uh, um, so yeah. And do you have a preference between the sort of uh, European style of chess or chess tournament and the American? 
Not really. I mean, it, in uh, in Denmark, there was a lot of uh, smaller round robins, like uh, eight uh, eight person groups that uh, that I participated in. The local tournaments were uh, all play all uh, with uh, eight players in each group. Um, there are a lot of those events. There are some bigger groups as well, also and open uh, tournaments. But a lot of them were uh, all play all, and uh, of course, I've never seen one of those over here aside from the title giving tournaments. So, um, uh, so yeah. I mean, I don't really have any preference. It's uh, because I mean, if if you had a rough game, it's good sometimes just to get a a weaker opponent so you can recover a little bit before right. <laughs> you have to battle the big boys again. Um, whereas in a round robin, uh, I mean, you can have had a miserable game and then the next day you're playing the tournament leader. Yeah, uh, and then the day after that you're getting another <laughs> bastard right. that's gonna knock you down yeah. if he if he or she has the opportunity. So. Um, so yeah, now I uh, both have their advantages for sure, but um, yeah. but I like open tournaments. I think uh, they have a special atmosphere to them. So uh, sometimes uh, you're lucky with who you're playing against, and other times you're just up against every single one that has a title and a high rating, and uh, you just have to find your way through them. That's how you get stronger as well, though. Yeah, yeah. You can't, <laughs> you can't really get better at chess just avoiding the tough competition. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And for, for listeners not familiar, the, the U.S. amateurs that uh, Karsten referenced a few, a few minutes back, that's a big team tournament put on by U.S. chess. Normally, of course, it's done in person, and they do four regionally throughout uh, the United States. And it's a super fun tournament, one of the only ones that, that doesn't cost much money. I mean, you're probably going to need to spring for a hotel, but the entry fee is, is quite small. And uh, fun team spirit uh, shocking number of chess players crowded into a hotel. <laughs> and it uh, it's in contrast to most of the other tournaments Karsten's alluding to in the U.S. where there's a big financial incentive. So it's funny that there's the dichotomy, whereas I think normally American tournaments might be a little more or money-oriented, but then with the amateur ones, the amateur team tournaments, they're the least money-oriented. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, to have yeah, over a thousand players, sometimes as many as twelve hundred players playing for no prices at all, except chess clocks and uh, and like uh, random prices in the middle between the rounds. I mean, that's. I think uh, it, it has a very special charm, and uh, the one in New Jersey is is one that's near and dear to my heart. So, uh, so it's good yeah. fun. And this one will be the the uh, two thousand twenty one one will be done online, of course. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so Karsten, I've got a chess improvement question for you, but first let's take a break and hear from our sponsors, Aim Chess. This episode is brought to you in part by aimchess.com, a new sponsor with a great new product that collects all your games from leechess and chess.com and gives you reports of what you need to work on. They even have a new free 2020 recap report that gives you an overview of your chess highlights for the year. So it's pretty fun stuff. They have a free version as well as a subscription one. So you should go check out the site, see if you like it. And then if you decide to subscribe, be sure to use the promo code CHESS30. Capitalization does not matter, and that will show them that you came from Perpetual Chess and you liked what you saw. Okay, back to the interview. Check out aimchess.com. Okay, so Karsten, we've got a question. This one is from the Chess Twitter community. This one is from Michael Bufkin, and he just gets straight to the point and says, how do I break 2100 on the chess.com tactics trainer? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question, honestly. I mean, um, uh, I would have to say you have to keep practicing, and you have to keep practicing a lot. But also, um, uh, 
what I have found with uh, the tactics trainers online is that um, you are just being offered a solution um, afterwards when you are uh, when you missed your opportunities, especially in the puzzle rush and so forth, uh, and. That is not very helpful for improving your chess overall. So if you take time to uh, to use books, like I mean, I have a, a written several of them, um, uh, and then just go through the solutions and try to understand them, and then the ones that you couldn't solve the first time around, return to them. So you start working it as a muscle, pretty much like you would uh, would uh, exercise any other muscle way if you're doing any kind of sports. Then you get better at it, uh, and and gradually, uh, when you keep testing yourself and puzzles that are slightly outside your comfort zone, uh, then eventually you're you're going to reach a level where uh, the twenty one hundred puzzles are going to be no problem at all. I mean, uh, uh, I know at one point I uh, when I was doing some of the online puzzles some years back, I didn't do particularly well, and uh, I tied it quite narrowly to the fact that I was out of shape chess-wise. But when working on chess puzzles daily, as I am right now, uh, you uh, you see a lot more. And I mean, uh, when I try to do the uh, the tactics trainer on, on chess.com, uh, the first evening I got to 2,800. And then I'm like, okay, all right, this is... Uh, this is all right. <laughs> uh, they were getting more difficult, but still, um, uh, they are solvable. And that's, I, I attribute that to just having worked on tactics a lot uh, because you recognize more patterns. Uh, and as I said, the more you exercise that muscle, the stronger it gets. I mean, uh, Cyrus Lochterwaller uh, wrote about it in, in a foreword to one of my books as well that uh, – it, it helps you also in those situations, those critical situations in in your own games when uh, when time is running out and so on, and everything gets complicated, and then all of a sudden you need to have that it basically sitting in your wrist, uh, and so you don't have to think about it. Yeah, and of course your buddy that you alluded to, I am Cyrus Lakdawalla. Um, your main competition for the most prolific chess writer, as far as I can tell, Carsten. <laughs> yes. Um, although he has the advantage of not having a day job, so it's a bit of an unfair fight. Um, yeah, well, the, th- the thing is, he works extremely hard at it, too. And, and uh, I all had hats off to him. I am very, very impressed by his productivity as well. But he on- honestly also showed me the way that it, it is possible to, uh, uh, to, uh, to publish more than one book per year. Yeah, for sure. Um, So getting back to the tactics question, aside from the chess.com tactics trainer, are there any particular resources you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I would start with my own books, um, but they're not, I I mean, in all fairness, my books are not for everybody. Uh, The the chess tactics for improvers uh, will definitely cater to the uh, the greater group of chess players um and whereas the uh, the the ones that are just uh, daily chess training chess tactics uh those are the puzzles that are i would call the brown puzzles online uh they are typically more difficult uh and those would be catering to players i would say at least 1700 but i know uh many grandmasters are using them for their own track t- uh, tactics training so um uh, but outside my own books, I mean, there are a lot of really, really good tactics books out there, puzzle books uh, that people they can uh, can look at. Um, there are 
tactics courses on Chessable. I uh, I've only looked briefly at a couple of them, so I don't uh, know which ones I would recommend particularly. But I would say anything where there is annotated solutions are the way to go because uh, bare uh, game scores or just a few moves that uh, that tell you uh, the direction of the puzzle or the intended solution will not really offer you anything in understanding. And that's where I and several others have uh, gone in a different direction by annotating the solutions and giving much more analysis and that's also what you would see in my chess life column. There's there's a bit more uh, annotations to the uh, uh, to the solutions so that people can get a little bit more context as to okay what happened in the game. Frequently, the even the players inside in the game, even strong ones, are not catching the best solution. Uh, and it's it's important to catch those things and under, uh, explain the uh, the thinking behind it as much as possible. And uh, that's why a, a pure tactics trainer or a puzzle rush uh, will not really make you stronger. It'll help you with your pattern recognition, but it will not help you understand better. So, uh, so you have to find a little bit of a balance. Yeah, it's a really good point you raised, Karsten, about the uh, tactics train, the tactics explanations. I think it's particularly important for club players. Um, I know that a lot of club players have mentioned to me, like you see the answer and you still don't know why it's the answer. So it's good that you and other authors are working to help with that. Um, so have you come across, and we're gonna get to chess books, by the way, somehow <laughs> I didn't mention in the uh, introduction that you're the book reviewer for American Chess Magazine. Um, so uh, one of the sort of segments I'd like to do is the, uh, the year, in, year in chess, um, year in chess books, I should say. So um, any standouts? What, do you have any recent discoveries in all of your reading that you do for American Chess Magazine? Absolutely. I, I in fact, I, I did a uh, sort of a blog post for um, the uh, Chess.com shop uh, with my favorite books of the year um, uh, so far, at least uh, at the time of writing when I wrote it, um, and in no particular order. Um, I, I I chose ten books, but there's a couple of more books that have come since uh, that I would have loved to have added to the list. Um, uh, the first one uh, is the um, the 50th anniversary edition of the Match of the Century uh, of the uh, the USSR versus of the World that was published by um, uh, Chess Informant. Mm -hmm. It was a hardcover edition where uh, uh, chess historian Douglas Griffin had been in and uh, locating uh, annotations from all the players. So all the games are annotated by the players. Um, and, uh, I mean, the original edition was by, uh, Petrosian and, uh, Matanovic. Um, but the new edition is just a stunning book and, uh, the annotations and the pictures are just fantastic. So highly recommend that one. Um, the second book, uh, is, uh, Rewire Your Chess Brain by, uh, by Cyrus. Uh, Lakdawala. Um, that was a bit of a surprise uh, to me. I mean, he, uh, he did write that he was going to, or t he did tell in, in his Facebook group that he was going to write this book here, and I was very excited about it. He actually got me into uh, working on studies and and problems. I'm still not hooked on the problems that, may, I mean, they largely make no sense to me, but because of the the pieces just being organized in a random fashion and uh, at least apparently random fashion. So but, these are uh, the mate and twos and mate and threes that you're not as big a fan of? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, um, 
the yeah the problems were like made in twos or self mates and uh, retro analysis and all that stuff. There, uh, they can be fun. Uh, some people are telling me, including Cyrus, that they are very beneficial. Um, I am not keen on the problems, but studies have definitely opened my eyes to uh, to uh, better in-game play and also like the resources and, and just working with a few pieces and so on. And that I find it very fascinating. The book is very well written. Um, uh, also, I mean, A, he goes through all the benefits of, of how... Uh, solving puzzles and problems can help your chess, but also he go uh, in in the puzzles, uh, sorry, the problems and the studies that he uh, illustrate the book with. He also go about explaining how he tries to uh, solve the puzzles, which is very educational in itself. So um, that I found uh, very very helpful, and I think um, anybody should be picking up a copy of that book. Um, the best autobiography of the year was, uh, in my opinion, uh, My Chess World by David Navarro, the uh, the Czech Grandmaster. Uh, it's an absolutely massive book. Um, uh, he's only 35 years old, um, and the book is 600 pages long. Yeah. Uh, and the games are incredibly well annotated. They are not just his wins. There are losses, uh, some very painful losses in between, of course, because he's a very, very strong grandmaster rated over 2,700. Um, the games are against the best players in the world, Magnus, uh, Levon Aronian, and uh, Grishchuk, and so forth. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's very fascinating games, but also he just talks about uh, his own experiences in tournaments and so on. So, um, fantastic book, honestly. It um, uh, highly recommended as well. Um, the fourth book uh, on my list there was Petrosian Year by Year. Um, uh, it's published by Elgin Ruby, uh, written by Tibo Caroli and Tigran uh, Giosalian, I think his name is. It's uh, volume one. It covers the period up to uh, the World Championship uh, in 1963. Uh, so from 1942 to 1962. And uh, uh, Petrosian is one of my favorite players. I've always found him very, very interesting. Uh, and especially his play up to the World Championship uh, match against uh, uh, Spassky in, uh, in 63. So, sorry, against Botvinnik in 63, was, uh, uh, that's when he was at his strongest uh, and played the most interesting chess. And uh, anybody that, that should study his games, uh, that this is the book to pick up. Um, so highly recommend them. Then uh, probably my favorite book of the year uh, is The Complete Chess Windler by uh, mm. David Smearton. Um, it is such a fun book to read. It's... Um, I mean, it, it's an education in being uh, being resourceful at the, at the chessboard. And uh, if if anybody has read Chess for Tigers, this is sort of the the advanced course on that one. Uh, the Chess for Tigers, they had a, a, a Simon Webb wrote a chapter on why he never loses in chess, um, <laughs> and uh, of course he does. But uh, it 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 gave you a lot of ideas as to how to to fight better and also sometimes fight a little dirty. Um, but uh, the, the complete chess swindler has really gone above and beyond in uh, defining uh, what is a swindle, the psychology behind it, what you need to have in your toolbox uh, to, uh, to be successful at swindles, uh, what your key skills should be, and then uh, how they work. 
Uh, I mean, that is, uh, it's a fun book and it is truly phenomenal. It's very well written. So, I mean, the, the fact that it won the, um, uh, the uh, English Chess Federation's Book of the Year Award. Uh, I think uh, nobody should have any anything against that. It was it's a really great book. Um, uh, of course, for more advanced players, uh, the um, decision making books by Gelfand. The uh, yeah. uh, technical decision making came out this year. Uh, phenomenal book, but definitely not for everybody. But for stronger players. There's a ton to be learned from uh, from Gelfand. I mean, he's been working with uh, Jacob Agard on um, on these uh, these books here, and uh, the material in them is just outrageously good. So he also, I think, they also released uh, heavy piece endings. Um, mm-hmm. Haven't seen that one, so uh, I can't really talk about that one. But uh, uh, but the uh, technical decision making is uh, is a phenomenal book. Um, then uh, yeah, Timans. Uh, uh, triumphs, triumphs his, uh, yeah. yeah his uh 100 best games is also a fantastic read um uh, it's a, very different from the navarra book in terms of um of uh yeah the uh stories uh, surrounding the games and uh, his own thoughts but of course i mean timon uh, was uh, a world elite chess player for for decades and uh, he has played against everybody, and uh, the stories he's telling and the games that he's presenting are just fantastic. So, uh, definitely, some uh, somebody should be picking that one up too. I I, I can highly recommend it. Uh, while we are at uh, biographies, uh, the volume two on the Emmanuel Lasker, I think that's a pretty expensive book, um, uh, written by or edited by uh, Michael Negeli, Reitis uh, Birik, and uh, Richard Forster. Um, it's it's fantastic it's it's also i mean it's very much lasker and lasker and uh in terms of everything else like his uh his own board game uh that uh i think resembles uh draughts and uh there's stuff with his contributions to go and bridge and so on so it may not appeal to everybody but still a phenomenal book i mean the chess part of it uh was written by uh, Morin, the uh, the Romanian grandmaster, and John Donaldson. Um, so uh, that's uh, highly recommended. And now we are in Donaldson. I yesterday I received mm-hmm. the new Bobby Fisher book by Donaldson, and although I have only browsed in it, I can already say now that this is probably the the best work i have ever seen on fisher so uh, it's uh, yeah around 650 pages at least and it is just a stunning production it really is it's uh, lots of pictures uh, lots of games and uh, uh, it's everything about fisher and his contemporaries so it's i can definitely recommend that one as well um uh, okay. that's yeah, good and, for now let's pause you yeah. for a minute okay very good very good that was amazing <laughs> Um, yeah, so the Donaldson book, I have it as well. I'm only about 60 pages in, but I just want to echo what you said. It's beautiful and it's a nice combination of biography and chess games. And, um, we'll, we'll be getting John Donaldson on the podcast, um, whenever I can read this book, (laughs) (laughs) So probably, probably in a month to two, but definitely looking forward to talking to John about that. And of course, a lot of the other guests that you mentioned or authors that you mentioned, I should say, have been on the podcast in various forms. Uh, Shout out to Douglas Griffin. Um, So of course you mentioned that books like Timmons Triumphs and Gelfand's two new uh, issues with quality chess. And of course, David Navarro being a a nice guy and a super GM. Um, It strikes me that most of these are fairly advanced. 
um, when we had Cyrus Lakdawalla on the show about two months ago, he he suggested someone of any level can benefit from rewire your chest brain. Um, I love you, Cyrus, but I'm a little skeptical. I think <laughs> I think maybe 1600 on up if you actually want to get any right. Um, you you know you still might learn from it either way. So. Yeah. Um, so this is all leading up to the question, Karsten, if there's anything that struck your fancy that you feel could be quite useful for club players um, this year. Hmm. That's a uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, Vladimir Bosky, he wrote uh, a modern guide to checkmating patterns. I like that one uh, a bit. Uh, I um, haven't dived as much into that one as much uh, as as I would have liked to, but uh, again, I mean, uh, anybody that see uh, that follows me on Twitter also knows that I that I get a stupid amount of chess books <laughs> through the door. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, but uh, but I think that is uh, probably one of the books for regular cl- uh, uh, club players that I would recommend. Um, but again, there are, there are many. Uh, uh, many books that are written a little bit uh, too advanced for regular club players, but that club players can can greatly benefit from. And uh, I think honestly, uh, most club players would uh, enjoy reading some of these biographies and so on too. I mean, I'd, uh, because they are generally well annotated. If if there's a good balance between annotations and variations, and um, uh, I think Tiemann does a particularly good job at that. I think it's it's uh, books like that are very worthwhile. I mean, in the past, of course, the uh, the move by move series, also biographies um, from Every Man Chess, they they also look at different aspects of the stronger players' games, and that way you can sort of. Uh, gain information by studying uh, uh, games from the best players in the world. And I think that's 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 key. I think those are probably uh, what I, I would recommend. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I like the Move by Move series as well, although they don't explain every move. It's not like Chernov's classic logical chess Move by Move, but no. still, still good stuff. <laughs> it, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, Karsten, I want to pivot to actually talking about the publishing industry. But first, let's take a break and hear from our friends at Chessable, as we've been discussing. As always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. If this interview with FM Karsten Hansen has convinced you to try out and learn about English type openings, one knight F3 or one C4, you know you can get his course at chessable.com along with I Am Chess Explained, Christoph Zalecki, Lifetime Repertoires, one C4, one knight F3. And this is only part one. There's more to come. It involves the move trainer technology, which enables you to remember the lines that you learn. And it's a annoying opening that I never want to face. So go to chessable.com and you can learn more about the English amongst all their awesome new offerings. Okay, so Karsten, um, we are back and I wanted to talk about the chess book publishing industry because even though you're primarily an author, I know you've also done some self-publishing. So we, when we reached out on social media, we got a couple questions. Um, and again, I would direct listeners uh, to our first interview for even more info about um, different publishers and how how the process of uh, getting a book published might work. But first of all, from friend of the pod and chessable author, Camille, FM Camille Plichta, um, he seems to be hatching something because he's got a lot of questions about self-publishing. <laughs> okay, so, very good. So, so let's hear what Camille has to say. 
He says, uh, a big question from me, when Karsten decided to do self-publishing, what was his plan and how did it work in practice? When was his first self-published book out? What would he suggest to someone who wants to self-publish his first book? What to avoid? Okay. Uh, there's a bunch of things here that we can cover. Um, first and foremost, uh, for those that are thinking about publishing their own book, uh, it's crucial to realize before you start writing who you're writing the book for, who is the intended audience. Um, because I've seen some of these uh, self-published books and I don't think they cater to anybody but the author, him or herself. It's uh, um, the the audience is just not taken into consideration. So uh, that that is very important to define first for yourself. Uh, figure out who you're writing for, who is the intended audience, how strong are uh, are the the players in uh, in this audience, and uh, what are the uh, the goals from it. Um, when I started. Um, uh, self-publishing. I, I got inspired by a self-publishing podcast, and then I figured, you know what? Let me see if I can write a book by, uh, for myself. So, um, so I uh, I sort of uh, found this idea with uh, writing about uh, ultra miniatures, which is games of fifteen moves or fewer. Uh, and I just intended to have it as one book, but then as I started writing. I realized I have entirely too many games to fit it into one book. Um, so then I figured, okay, I'm going to do it in five volumes. Uh, that also didn't turn out uh, feasible. Then I kept adding volumes, and then it became nine uh, hmm. uh, with a sort of a best-of uh, edition as well, uh, which is the the tenth, where there's a game from each chapter from all the other books. Um, that uh, that series is called Catastrophes and Tactics in the Chess Opening, and uh, I mean there's one on the Indian defenses, one on one d4 d5, one on flank openings, one on d pawn specialties with the Dutch and the Benonis. Uh, there's one on anti-Sicilians, one on open Sicilians, uh, E4, E5, and then uh, one on uh, French and the Caracan. Um, so uh, the very first one I wrote, I wrote back in January, February of 2017. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, I mean, I gave a lot of copies away to begin with. Uh, um, I mean, either for free for people that uh, signed up on my website or... Um, uh, just uh, on different platforms, I gave them away for free, uh, probably in excess of a thousand copies uh, as e-copies, of course, e-books. Um, but still, uh, as of last month, it is still my best-selling bu uh, book. Uh, people are still buying hundreds of copies every month of that particular book, the first volume in that series. Um, and then, of course, as they work their way through that one, they pick up the next uh, volume in the series and so forth. And some people are going out and then just buying all 10. So uh, that, that's that's a uh, another thing to keep in mind. When you're writing books uh, for yourself, uh, think about something where you can write a series because uh, uh, people, they like to know what they're going to read after they're done with the first one. Um, and that's why, for example, the decision-making series is so popular also amongst stronger players because they know, okay, I'm done with a positional one and I can move on to the next topic. topic. Um, um, and uh, same thing with the Move by Move series and so forth. So uh, think about writing something that you can write about again and again. Uh, because uh, people, they like to read uh, more books of the same thing. If the first one appeals to them, they don't want something radically different in the next one. Um, 
Uh, also, uh, other practical things is, I mean, find somebody to help you with the cover design of the book. Um, I did the very first cover myself, and I wasn't. I thought it was great, but I'm like, you know what? Uh, let me just see what a designer thinks. Um, and he took the theme that I had presented and just made it like a hundred times better. Yeah, <laughs> it is, uh, and uh, and it's still not perfect because he went very specifically in the direction as to what I had outlined for him. Uh, and with my subsequent books, uh, especially the chess tactics series, I think I found a, a better design there. And it's actually the same design I've been working with. But I told him, okay, this is what I would like to have it. But see if you can come with some some different fonts and something that is more catchy. And because the designer has an, an eye for for those things that I don't have, uh, it looks a lot better than than the the, the first uh, uh, first go around. So uh, don't be afraid to spend a little bit of money on that. Um, yeah. Because it's worthwhile. It, a, a book with an ugly cover is uh, is not very interesting uh, to uh, to the chess buying audience, and they will probably never be picked up. So, do yourself the favor and and have a designer look at it before you send something out there. Okay, cool. Yeah, and since Karsten's <laughs> easy to find, if anyone has follow up questions, I'm going to ask a few. But if you have even <laughs> more, um, then you can always ping him on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll share the links. Um, because this topic is of great interest to me and Camille, but maybe maybe not as much to to every improver out there. But, <laughs> no. um, but I do want to know, Karsten, if you don't mind saying, since you talked about numbers a little bit, um, would you be so kind as to share what your best and worst selling books sold in terms of numbers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, there, the the book that my cheapest book, I would say that uh, that is. Um, uh, the one, uh, the the best off sort of for my uh, my catastrophes and tactics series is also my best selling one, uh, and that has sold, I think, in excess of six thousand copies. Okay. Um, uh, that being said, from a traditional publisher, um, uh, the book that I wrote uh, on the uh, C four E five uh, English for Gambit Publications uh, about twenty years ago. Um, that wrote uh, that sold about I think four and a half thousand copies. Um, the the first book in my series here, Catastrophes and Tactics, has probably it's pretty close to four thousand copies I've sold so far. And I mean, last month alone, it sold more than three hundred copies. So, uh, uh, so I mean, but that's part of the the boosts behind uh, the Queen's Gambit. Queen Gambit bump, yeah. <laughs> exactly, uh, where book sales just went bananas. Um, but it, it sold steadily uh, ever since I, uh, I published it uh, back in 2017. Uh, the worst-selling book that I have is... That's a good question. Uh, you it never sold negative. Negative copies you never sold, right? <laughs> no, no, but it, it is probably um, the one on... Uh, other uh, uh, semi-open games in uh, the catastrophes and tactics, or the uh, the one on uh, specialized chess tactics on uh, on the Budapest and Fyrovis gambits, which was also just uh, it was an idea I got and I wrote the book pretty quickly. A lot of people like it, but uh, compared to the other ones, it sold. Uh, those two books have sold significantly less. 
Okay. And let me ask you, Karsten, so you've published with a wide variety of publishers. And then, of course, you also have the successful series that you're self-publishing. Um, yeah. So how do you decide? Like, uh, how do you decide what route to go for which book? Um, I kind of know what traditional publishers are looking for. Uh, and uh, for example, that series um, uh, for Catastrophes and Tactics, I knew no regular publisher would pick up on that. They they would find it uh, no, not viable, um, and it's your most one of them is your most successful. Exactly. Uh, so <laughs> I mean, but that just goes to say, uh, goes to show that not everybody in the publishing world know exactly what would sell best. Uh, but again, uh, that would not be a project that I could sell to any publisher at all. I'm certain of it. Uh, even if some of them have published. Uh, miniature books and so on and i mean my latest book with uh with han and russell and, uh, and russell enterprises is on miniatures and uh but that was um when he contacted me i'd already had the other series out and it, it they were selling well i mean uh, on the amazon bestseller chart i mean at one point i think i had six books on the t- top 10 at the same time wow. uh, <laughs> so um so he reached out to me and i said i i have this idea um and having this big collection of games um, uh, that should be lightly annotated, um, but also, I mean, the annotation should be meaningful. And then we'll have a, a diagram to each game and so on. And I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, I'm all for it. Uh, then it ended up being over 2,000 games, uh, uh, like uh, 2,020 uh, games, very fitting into uh, to this year. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, it got uh, the book ended up being a lot longer than anticipated because uh, Hannon said the more inspired I got along the way, uh, he could see the first annotations I made were uh, somewhat lighter in uh, in in or more brief, I would say. Uh, whereas the l- longer or further I got into the book, the more inspired I got, and my annotations got a little bit deeper. But because I cover every single opening in that book. I, it's uh, from ECO code A00 to ECO uh, code E99. Every opening is covered. So uh, so I pick games with every single opening that uh, or ECO code that I could find. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it ended up being uh, 2020 games. And, uh, wow. It's a it's a very massive book, but uh, it's a fun book. Also, it's good for for uh, chess teachers and that need something uh, uh, with a tactical theme. And the games are, of course, very short. Also, so you don't bore your students too much either. Um, so, um, and there, there are some things that can be solved along the way with along with some meaningful comments in in, in nearly all of the games. So, um, yeah, I hope a lot of people will be picking up on that. Great. And yeah, Modern Marvelous Miniatures, of course, available um, online and in Kindle as well, Um, which brings us to another question. This one is from the aforementioned Brian Karen, the founder of the Chess Book Collectors Group, who had one more publishing sort of question, um, which is he said, Carson, you've embraced the Kindle format while other publishers have been reluctant due to fears of copyright infringement. Have you had reason to second guess your decision to publish on Kindle? In short, do you feel that the Kindle format has helped you to make more of a profit from your books? And of course, Brian's alluding to that can lead to wide uh, stealing of PDFs. Yeah, I I, I have not uh, had any second thoughts about publishing in that way. uh, By and large, until the last month and a half, 
my ebook sales have been as as good as my uh, my print book sales. Uh, but in the last month, I think um, uh, in the uh, the Queen's Gambit boost, um, I think eighty eight percent of my books uh, have been sold as printed format uh, compared to uh, to Kindle. So um, uh, I think that's uh, I, I've been perfectly happy with that. Um, but um, uh, I I know people are worried about uh, the the uh, the theft of uh, of these books here, the PDF versions and so on. I honestly just see that as the cost of doing business. Um, uh, I mean, if if and, I, and that is also why I've given. I mean thousands of copies away um uh, of my of my books i i happily do it because at least some people they have an introduction to me as an author and they can get it for basically no money at all uh and uh if that can if they can give some joy to some people especially uh the people that don't have the same access uh to or or resources to uh to do chess training absolutely i'm just happy to be part of that but otherwise i mean it's just advertising i see it as it uh um, that being said i am very much against people that are uh doing the uh the, the theft of uh of other people's works and uh republishing it as their own i uh, recently i saw a, an example i don't know if you caught on to it on on twitter i asked who is this particular author um and um it was somebody with like a bulgarian eastern european name and uh when i looked into it it seemed like every single book he put his new own new cover on it and put his own name on it as author. He had removed the foreword, or at least removed the author's uh, name at the bottom of the foreword, and then the rest of the content was just, uh, yeah, uh, photocopies or PDF copies of of the original books. So, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, I was very pleased just to put a little bit of effort into figuring out which authors and and which publisher had been affected, and then I sent an email to. I think four different publishers and saying, guys, uh, there's this guy out doing this. And Amazon, thankfully, they uh, reacted and uh, took all the books down. So, uh, so that was uh, that was a little success. I'm very happy about because I mean, while I I don't mind giving people my books for free, uh, people shouldn't steal either. So yeah, um, <laughs> and you got to make a living. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If people value it. They should be willing to pay. And chess books generally are not uh, expensive. Um, okay, so we might circle back to one more sort of publishing-related question later, Karsten, but yeah. let's, let's get into the English a little bit. So yes. you, you and Christoph Zalecki have your new course out. And again, I would direct listeners, funny enough, we talked about the English in our prior interview. I think, uh, I think Karsten mentioned he's been playing it since 1982 or something. So yes. obviously there's, there's plenty to talk about. Um, but first off, I wanted to read another question from a, uh, a Twitter follower. Uh, Chris Tilling chimed in and asks, he said, I'd love to hear about your fascination with the English. What drew you to it? How might it compare with other mainline openings for white? And how might studying the English enrich a chess player? Wow, that's a very good question. Um, uh, the English opening is a bit like the Sicilian. I mean, it is frequently a, a reverse Sicilian. So it... There's a lot of different ways you can play the English opening, which is what I really, truly like about it and why I keep playing it after so many years. I mean, 
when I first started out, I had a very specific setup uh, that I chose was c4, knight c3, g3, bishop g2, e3, and then knight g to e2. I played that against everything. Uh, that is not the best setup against everything, I should say, but it worked for me to begin with. Uh, as I have become stronger and I uh, my play has become a little bit more nuanced, I have found that there is many, many different ways you can play the English opening, even the English four knights. Um, there is so many different setups you can choose. Some of them look slightly ridiculous, but they're very challenging. And especially uh, for, uh, for black players, there's so many different things to prepare against. Uh, so if you can find yourself some specialty lines there, there's plenty of opportunity to uh, to both challenge your own creativity and uh, and your own understanding, but also put your opponent in in foreign territory right from the get go. And uh, <clears throat> that's what I what I like about the English opening because uh, most people have something prepared against e4 and d4, uh, less so against the English opening. When I was younger, when I played against the English opening, I I also had like I never knew what to do. Yeah, uh, I had some ideas, uh, and uh, for a while I had certain variations that I preferred, but uh, there was never something I stuck to because I was never 100% happy with it. Um, and uh, I mean, in part, I still have that issue. <laughs> yeah, I play, I, I play so many different lines <laughs> against the English opening, uh, also because white can can uh, try to move order you in so many ways. Yeah. And that's that's part of what that, that English course is about also. I mean, you can start with knight f3, which is very flexible, or you can play c4. And uh, while it could lead in one direction and lead into something that looks like a stale, symmetrical, uh, or pure symmetrical English, uh, white has ways to all of a sudden take a, a sharp turn and the game, uh, the nature of the game will be completely different. And that's what I like about the English opening. Uh, you are very unlikely to run into some uh, super sharp preparation uh, uh, because you are typically the one that's steering the direction of the game. Of course, Black has something to say about the specific variation you're going to be playing, but you can you can really... Uh, you can do a lot to choose for yourself, and uh, and again, the preparation is rarely as deep against C four as it is in any of the other openings. So, yeah, yeah, and I did pick up the course. I'm I've always been an E four player, so I was first checking it out from Black perspective. And yeah, the the depth of uh, the information you and Christoph share is super impressive. And it's funny that you mentioned the transpositional issue because I I always played similar to what you're describing. I always played the reverse Sicilian against the English. And I had some idea, but definitely didn't study it as much as I would facing D4 or E4. And I've just had some terrible games over the years where they go knight F3 on the first move. And (laughs) I end up in some sort of symmetrical English. And uh, yeah, it doesn't go well. Um, no. So I'm curious, um, you know, you, you've got your finger on the pulse of the English opening, and I know that this project is only volume one uh, for Chessable. So is there a line that you've seen that you would recommend specifically to players with black? I mean, obviously, someone who's playing it with white um, is going to need to buy the course and, uh, you know, do the work to learn what they're um, learn what they're going to play. But is like, uh, what, what were you impressed with that black can do against the English? No, uh, there's nothing in, uh, black <laughs> can do against yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, uh, d- d- the thing is, uh, the the lines uh, that we have chosen to work on, um, 
were not necessarily lines that I would have picked first for myself either. Um, but uh, they are very challenging for black uh, to face. I mean, there are many variations that lead to something close to equality. Uh, but, I mean, you you have to run into st stuff like that. I mean, you can't just say that C4 is going to win or give you an advantage. Uh, uh, so, I mean, like, for example, if black chooses uh, a semi-slav setup, uh, he's going to get very, he or she is going to get very close to equality. Um, but the person with the black pieces are then going to be faced with uh, an English setup against the semi-slav, uh, and try to direct their own game in the direction of the best lines. And while white is super prepared against it, black is much less so. Um, because typically when you're playing the, the, uh, the Slav or the semi-Slav and, and all these super exciting variations, you have focused on the main lines and in some part on, on, on some of the sidelines. But we are very, very specific. And we have tried to find uh, choices that are not necessarily the main variations, but some that are able to challenge black. Uh, and you're going to see that in part two as well, where uh, I know that I looked at lines that I have never seriously started before, and I was very much surprised by how uh, how difficult it is for black to, uh, to equalize, uh, uh, in part because uh, black needs to really know his or her theory to uh, to find the right moves, but also there are so many ways that they can go wrong just by by not knowing the right move order. Uh, so um, so no, I, I've been uh, been very happy to be part of the project here, and uh, Christoph is, uh, uh, is 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 amazing in uh, in putting these uh, repertoires together as well. So uh, my uh, kudos to him as well for. I mean, this is not his first lifetime repertoire, yeah. I think, uh, and. Um, it's not his first course either. He's one of the leading uh, uh, course writers for uh, for Chessable, and uh, the way he thinks about these and, and and approaches them is absolutely amazing. So, yeah. uh, uh, so I mean, much of it was based on his outline, but of course, I have uh, put my own color into it as well, and uh, and done a lot of original analysis, and we've found hundreds of novelties, many of them that turn. Uh, the uh, the regular considered or the normal uh, evaluation on, on its head. So uh, there's some some serious improvements that I know uh, some IMs uh, have come to me and said, I mean, this is good stuff. They they really enjoy the uh, the depth and uh, the ideas that have been uh, been put into this analysis, uh, this course here, so the first one uh, that is available already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, obviously, caveat. I'm friendly with Christoph. He's been on the show. But yeah. but I wouldn't I wouldn't say this other I mean this is the third course of his I've I've bought and I'm always impressed with them and he he has a way of uh, thinking about the openings holistically um, yeah. so you're not just you, everything doesn't feel so separate you kind of have sort of a, a through line where you're playing sort of a certain system against a certain line like I saw E3 against the reverse Sicilian which because it's in the course I'm now going to have to bone up on as black. Um, so <laughs> thanks a lot, Christoph. <laughs> uh, so uh, one more question relating to this course from um, another um, another Twitter question. This one's from Eric Jensen, and I think it's a good question. Um, 
So Eric asks, he says, not strictly a chess question, but since I own the Accelerated Dragon book and it's newer edition, which I do too, by the way, um, Karsten did with Peter Hein Nielsen. And obviously the English Chessable course was a collaboration with Christoph. Would love to hear about the collaboration process, the best way to make it work. Do you learn from working with such great analysts? Do they learn from you? And, and most importantly to me, do you guys ever disagree on an evaluation or recommendation? And can that doom a project? Um, I think you have to be very clear on uh, what your tasks are in the uh, in 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 any project that you go into. Um, uh, with uh, when I wrote with Peter Heine, uh, both of us had our own chapters uh, that we wrote, and uh, then we would then share them with each other as soon as they were finished. I did the final edit of uh, of the first edition uh, uh, before we sent it into the publisher, and then of course. They did some editing as well. Uh, then, for the uh, when we did the new edition, we also had a very clear definition as to what uh, both of us wanted to accomplish with the new one. Uh, where uh, Peter added some perspective on on the, uh, the the development in the the opening as such, and I mean, with him being the coach of uh, Magnus Carlsen and so on. Of course, yeah. his word weighs a lot more now than it did originally mm -hmm. when, when he was just a 2,500 Grandmaster. Um, uh, so, uh, and then uh, I, uh, yeah, I added some games as well. And then I added the entire chapter on, uh, on all Ben Larsen's games uh, with the Accelerated Dragon and added some light annotations to all of those. So I think uh, for a project to work well, you need to know, uh, what your general tasks are but you also have to be sort of you have to be very clear on what you're trying to accomplish together basically like if you're writing a book on your own uh you have to uh say all right this is what we want to accomplish this is what it has to look like uh because then the uh the chances of us becoming uh uh, running into problems later on uh, is much less than it otherwise would have been. Um, Peter and I were very clear on it, uh, what our tasks were and which chapters we preferred as well. Uh, Christoph and I, we also split the uh, the chapters up uh, immediately, uh, what suited uh, him best and what he had experience in. Uh, he uh, he fo has focused on and the stuff that I uh, had more experience in, I have been focusing on. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but of course there are, there are times when you have a, a project, uh, of this, uh, of, of either size for that matter, where you run into a problem in a particular variation. And then that's when it's, it's good to touch base on, uh, how will you solve this problem here? What do you think about this solution here that I presented to this, particularly when it's a repertoire, you have to have it consistent so that you don't go in the wrong direction and therefore ruin something that was perhaps supposed to trans, uh, transpose to it that the other person has been covering. So you can't take too many liberties when it's like that. But whereas uh, the project with Peter was uh, was very different because it was separate chapters. There's not that much overlap. And because I did the final edit, uh, in each case, uh, it, the loose ends were being tied together in that way. So, uh, so, but I mean, you, you have to sort of have the same way of thinking, uh, what you want to accomplish. Cause otherwise I can easily see a project going to, uh, going to shit.
Pardon my French. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, I've talked with Christoph and Jan Gustafsson and many others about how, how engines are, are changing things. Has that changed your work much? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, it has helped me see opportunities in, uh, in certain positions as well. And, and I know there was a, um, a discussion on Facebook. I don't remember which group it was in, but where um, how statistics are playing in uh, to uh, how you uh, evaluate a position like an overall statistic, whether that plays into whether you're recommended for a student or uh, whether you would use it yourself. And uh, I think engines are very, very helpful uh, for for a huge part. I mean, especially when you're talking club players and, and uh, not super strong masters. Uh, statistics can be very helpful because you can see whether a position is difficult to play for one side or another. I mean, uh, when I wrote my English book, there was a particular variation where the, the engines just called everything equal. And I, it was, uh, and, and writing chapters where everything, every variation ends in equal play, it's deeply frustrating because <laughs> it's not very exciting, not for you as a writer, but definitely not for the, uh, for the reader as well. But when you can add some context to, uh, uh, to the overall understanding and saying, okay, this position is difficult to play for one side. It may say equal, but black needs to, for example, play very, very precisely for a certain number of moves in order to accomplish this equality. Or uh, uh, white's position is easier to play. It's easier to come up with moves than it is for black. Then, uh, then it's a completely different scenario. I mean, the engine can say zero, zero, zero all at once. Right. If 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 white has an easier time playing the position than black, uh, sometimes you'll see the statistics showing that seventy uh, percent is in, in in white's favor in that type of position, just because white can make a lot more moves and he has a lot more freedom to make uh, small mistakes, whereas black has to be ultra precise in order for his position not to collapse instantly. Yeah. So. So, uh, so engines are very helpful. Uh, it helps also direct the the research uh, into new areas, um, and uh, I think particularly the new Stockfish Twelve engine that has become freely available um, has opened my eyes in, in a lot of variations where uh, I just found them fairly stale. Uh, and uh, actually, it has helped me more than uh, Lila Zero because. Uh, uh, these some of these cloud engines just they analyze entirely too deep and then it's just everything is zero 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 uh -huh. uh, whereas uh, stockfish uh, seems to have a, a more uh, a, a positional evaluation that somewhat resembles my own just of course it sees a lot further than i do uh, and therefore also helps me explore uh, the places where i uh, where I want to take my game. And this uh, is the regular Stockfish 12, not the NNUE neural network one? Yes, okay. exactly. So many, it's hard to keep track. Um, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, great stuff, Karsten. I think I just have one more um, online community question for you. Okay. Um, so this one is circling back to uh, Brian Karen. Uh, Brian, of course, um, been uh, immersed in the chess world for a long time. Um, so he had a question since you used to write for Chess Cafe, um, yeah. which is, uh, he said, it used to be the go-to spot for chess. Um, and as a columnist, what do you feel led to its near demise? Um, he says he says near because it's still around but rarely visited. Yeah, I, uh, I think 
most of the original uh, authors that were on the platform, they uh, were disenfranchised in one way or another. They they left or were forced out. Uh, uh, it became a uh, pay-to-play platform kind of thing. Uh, if you wanted access to the good stuff, you had to pay for it. And I think uh, the chess world wasn't 100% eager to do that at that point, especially because it had a long history of just delivering uh, excellent contents for free. Right. Um, and then uh, the uh, the book sales, the USCF book sales that was handled uh, by uh, uh, by Mark Donlan at the time uh, uh, was well, actually it was hand- handled by Hannon first. Uh, that was supposed to cover sort of the cost. The the profit from the the book sales was supposed to cover the cost for the authors and so on. Uh, that became different when uh, Mark took it over and. Um, uh, I think people they just gave up on it. I mean, I gave up on it myself too. It's uh, uh, I was replaced at one point also, and um, I mean, it's uh, it's sad to see because I really, I really love being a part of the uh, the platform. I think it ran fantastically under Hannon, uh, and uh, the authors that wrote for it. I mean, uh, Carsten Müller, Mark Toretsky, uh Tim Harding, Hans Ray. Uh, Susan Polgar, Lev Albert. I mean, it it was it was a fantastic thing to be a part of. And I mean, I could. I, I mean, Tony Miles had his uh, his column there as well that I absolutely love. Uh, the Australian uh, Chris uh, De Pasquale, I think his name is, had a hilarious column. I hope some sometime that those columns will be uh, published in book format because they were truly fantastic. So, uh, um, but uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think the chess world wasn't quite ready to be uh, to be paying for article and uh, articles in that fashion when they had been accustomed to getting everything for free. Yeah, I mean, even now with uh, with the chess business world, of course, doing doing better than it was in those days, uh, paywalls can still be a, a tough nut to crack, especially if it's just for written word. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, Karsten, we've covered a lot of topics. I mean, you're such a, you know, you know so much about the chess, chess, the game and chess, the industry. So it's always, yes. always a, a privilege to talk to you. Um, is there, are there any, uh, topics that, uh, that you're regretting that I didn't bring up before we let you out of here? No, I am just happy to be part of it. I, I think you're doing a fantastic uh, service to the chess community here with, uh, with your podcast here. And I am, uh, I'm just happy to be part of it. Uh, and, uh, I, as you have suggested already, people should be checking out, um, uh, on my previous visits, uh, because we covered a lot more topics back then as well, uh, that we didn't talk about this time. So, uh, I think, uh, we've covered most of the things that I wanted to talk about today. So, Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure, Karsten. Yeah, so I'll link to the previous episode and anyone can listen to that. And of course, you guys probably know this, but Karsten has a website. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on Facebook. Definitely not not a hard one to track down. And Karsten, <laughs> as we said last time, I'm going to track you down once this pandemic is over and we got we <laughs> yes, to grab please. a meal or something. <laughs> yes, definitely. I'm all for it. Okay, so thanks again, Karsten. Uh, take care. Thank you and you too. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, telling your friends, writing positive reviews on podcast platforms. All of that stuff helps. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1. Join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can find the link on the website. And we are back in action on Instagram, at Perpetual Chess, sharing a weekly clip from the podcast. So follow us over there as well. 
But of course, the main purpose of these credits is to thank everyone who makes the show possible by their financial support. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would have ceased to exist a long time ago. And for that, I am forever grateful and work to continually improve and expand the offerings from Perpetual Chess. So without further ado, I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Deaths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfs, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gulick, Guven Manet. James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John Martin MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, The Famous Mr. Dodgy, The Nerd Nays Twitch Channel, Peter Sodi, The Playmore Chess Academy of the Hampton Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach J's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Chorus, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Emmanuel Langlois-Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart lavoie Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacob Turan, Jacques Perry, James Espenwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, John Tully, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurty, Jonathan Slater, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Boyce, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gada of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, 
the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Lillard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbuck, Robert Tichy, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Walder, Shane Unger, the Sil- Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of of chess1000.com and of course Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening everyone. We will be back next week with another episode of Perpetual Chess. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.